is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Elsa Ramon. In for Charles Feldman today, President Biden makes it official. He is running for re-election. We will go in-depth. Harry Belafonte has died. We'll go in-depth into his career and his lasting impact. We are going to start, though, with President Biden running for re-election. Jonathan Lemire is a White House bureau chief for Politico and host of MSNBC's Morning News show way too early. Jonathan, first question here. It's clear from Biden's re-election video announcement he expects to face Trump again in the election. He touched on the same points, fighting extremism, MAGA ideology, fighting for the soul of the nation. But what if it isn't Trump? What if someone else gets the nomination? Will this strategy work? for Biden facing someone else? Well, certainly the president and his team say privately, they do anticipate that it will be former President Trump as the Republicans nominee next year. We're obviously very early in the campaign still, but Trump has pretty significant leads uh, in polling. And the Biden team, you know, as much as they think that could be the matchup, it also could be a little bit of wish casting. They hope that's the matchup because they do believe They can beat Trump again. They did, of course, in 2020, uh, and they feel that much more confident uh, in a rematch. But you make a good point that if it's someone else, it is a bit of a different race. First of all, the president's age might be more of a factor. He's 80 years old now, the oldest president we've ever had, but he's only three years old than Donald Trump. But if he faces up against someone who is decades younger, that perhaps will be a starker contrast. But what they will say is that any Republican, who emerges from the GOP field, even if it's not Donald Trump himself, would be a subscriber to Trumpism and would still be a MAGA threat. So they think the playbook can still work. So you've got the uh, what the polls are saying now. And of course, we all know that uh, what the polls say now are essentially meaningless because we've not even gotten into the heat of the campaign season yet. We haven't gone to the Republican primaries. So we don't know what's going to happen. But is there a possibility that knowing that Biden's best chance is against Donald Trump, Uh, even though the electorate appears to be tired of that, uh, let's not have a rematch. But at the same time, they don't want Trump, so they'll swing to Biden just for that alone. Uh, Are the Democrats going to kind of work to help clear the Republican primary field for Trump so that Trump is the nominee? Well, we did see in 2022 that the Democrats... In, in bolstered some of the more extreme Republican candidates in various primaries under the theory that, well, those more extreme candidates will be easier to beat in the general election. And, and they did have some success with that. There's been no talk of that in the general election. Donald Trump's a different animal. Uh, this is not someone who needs any sort of promotion, Democrats will say. The country knows who he is. Uh, they're gonna, I think that they will let that field play out on its own. You're right to underscore that it's very early. Trump has a big lead now, but Trump is facing several more investigations and potentially more criminal charges. And while the first time that happened a month back in Manhattan, that bolstered him in the GOP primary field, no doubt, uh, it's harder to see him getting a lift in the general election. And that returns to the, the Biden camp's theory of the case here is that those independents and swing voters that you need to win an election, look, some of them broke for Trump in 2016, no doubt about it. But most of them broke away from Trump to Biden in 2020. And the Biden camp thinks they'll hang on to them. And you're right. Polls suggest this is not a matchup. Trump versus Biden. America really wants to see again. There's not a groundswell of enthusiasm for the president's reelection bid. That said, the White House is banking on there will be a turnout motivator. And that's Donald Trump. People will come out to vote against Trump 
and that would propel, propel Biden to a second term. And I know Rob makes a good point. The polls right now could change in so many different directions between now and election time. But going into campaign season with lukewarm support, talking about Biden here, how does that translate into donations, excitement, campaign activity, other influential factors that are needed for a candidate to win? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. And that's why the biggest tip off as to how they're addressing it is the fact that he announced today uh, there were some in, in among Democrats and in the White House who believe that Biden could have waited. He could have waited till the summer. He could have even waited to this fall to announce because he has no real intra-party challenge. There's no credible primary threat here. Uh, they, 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 he's got some messy fights ahead with the debt ceiling and such. Uh, so there's an argument to wait. The reason why they didn't is because they know they want to have as much time as possible to raise money. That every day you lose on the front end, you can't make up on the back end, even if you are a fundraising juggernaut. This is going to be an extremely expensive race. And what the Democrats right now don't have a lot of enthusiasm. Poll after provided, poll after poll shows Voters think he's done a good job. Democratic voters do. But a lot of them aren't sure they really want him to run again, mostly because of his age. But they again, they feel like he is the best alternative to what comes out of the Republican side. They believe he is the one candidate in the Democratic Party field best suited to beat Trump, in part because of his strength in those trio of states, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, that so often uh, decide elections. So they're diving in now. They're going to start to raise money. But let's be clear, the real campaign for the president probably really won't start until early next year. All right. Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief for Politico, also host of MSNBC's morning news show, uh, Way Too Early. Now that President Biden is officially running for re-election, he's going to have to travel across the country next year, appearing at campaign stop after campaign stop, glad handing, all the stuff that comes with it. Recent polls show, though, voters are weary about his age at 80 years old, and it's a valid question. Steve Maviglio is a longtime Democratic strategist. And, uh, you know, it is a valid question, Steve. The president's been pressed on this lately, and he came back with, quote, watch me. But is he a viable choice at 80 years old? Yeah, the president is doing his job well. He's traveling all around the world. He's just been uh, circling the globe on a couple of trips for foreign diplomacy. He went to Ukraine. Uh, he goes all around the country touting the infrastructure bill that he passed. I think he's certainly up to the travel aspects of the job. But the question is, can he handle it day to day? And I think he's proving he can. I do think it's interesting that uh, in the case of uh, President Biden, a lot of attention is paid to his age, while at the same time, uh, Donald Trump is a likely Republican challenger again in 2024, is just three years younger than Mr. Biden. And yet uh, not a lot of the conversations focused on Trump on the age aspect. It's more focused on the the lawsuits, the criminal investigations, the indictments, etc. But just talking about the age aspect alone, I guess it's because Donald Trump has spent more time, uh, you know, with the uh, some make fun of his uh, face makeup. But but he he goes. For appearing to be hale and hearty and healthy and robust. And uh, people look at any time that uh, Joe Biden has a slip of the tongue because he's battled uh, a stutter his entire life, but they look at that and go, oh, see, that's the problem with his age. Is there a perception problem here on the age aspect? And, and if so, how does President Biden overcome that? 
Yeah, I think a little bit, but you know, this is not new to politics. When Ronald Reagan ran for president, he was 73 years old. The same questions were raised back then. And he actually, we know he won 49 states. So when people were faced with the choice of have somebody who was older they were concerned about or someone who was on their side of the issues, they chose the candidate that was closer aligned with him. And he actually mocked uh, his opponent at the time, who was 55 in a debate. And he said he's not going to make age an issue in the campaign because he didn't want to exploit the. Uh, the, his opponent's youth and in, 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 in ex, inexperience. And so if DeSantis somehow comes up, DeSantis is funny 44. So you might hear that same line of attack, uh, having age and wisdom and experience versus someone who doesn't. I think, yeah, Biden clearly showed that in the past, uh, past presidential primary debates when he kind of went after Paul Ryan on on that issue a little bit. But right. but when he ran in 2020, he wasn't subjected to this rigorous and exhaustive schedule campaigning because of covid. He didn't have to go to all these giant campaign stops with tons of people, which is exhausting doing all of that. He had limited exposure to the crowds to stay safe. That's not going to be the case this time around. I know you pointed out he is still traveling and talking about infrastructure and his agenda, but it is a different uh, animal, as you said earlier, between campaigning and, uh, you know, uh, touting what you've done for the American people during your administration on your schedule. Yeah, but I think the precursor to that was, you know, literally almost a four-year campaign uh, and being vice president. And he was running against Bernie Sanders, who wasn't exactly a teenager either. So, you know, in this day and age where everything is learned through social media and television and radio, there's less of that glad-handing, the, the campaign trains, the bus tours, less of that on the presidential level. You know, at the end of the day, it's going to be down to about four or five states that make the difference. And I think the Biden team feels they confident they can campaign there very well with, uh, you know, not exposing him to any kind of physical uh, stretch. Uh, final question. You're a longtime Democratic strategist. Would you advise uh, President Biden, if you had a say in his campaign, to uh, maybe go out of his way to do some things that might help uh, calm down the issue of the people who have concerns about his age? Yeah, I think he has to show it. You know, he he's riding a bike. Donald Trump would never get on a bike. Okay, he fell off, but he at least was making the effort. But I think he has to address the mental capacity and on. I mean, I know people that are younger that are not as sharp as he is, and, and I know I'm, people. I'm right that, here. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I lost my keys three times last week, so you know I forget stuff too. But you know, there are people that are older that are are more competent than him and some that are less so yeah let's put it out there face it you know prove it you see watch me well then let's watch you have more press conferences interact more with people you know every tiny gaffe is going to get magnified but at least you're out there showing the people that you know you're not locked up somewhere uh, and somebody else is doing your job all right uh, democratic strategist steve maviglio thank you so much for joining us today Coming up next in just a few minutes on KNX in Death, does Tucker Carlson have a future in Washington, D.C.? Well, coming up, we are going to explore the life and legacy of a Hollywood icon and civil rights activist. And right now, though, Tucker Carlson is pounding the pavement looking for work. He's got his resume with him. He's knocking on, well, probably not, but uh, he does have a massive following since he's uh, been uh, kind of canned from Fox News. So is the next step to get into politics? Well, with us now is Dan Schneer, a political communications expert and USC uh, professor. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Hey, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. So I think the reason some people are talking about the possibility of Tucker Carlson getting into politics, not just because of his following uh, that he would uh, bring with him into that field, but also because uh, without knowing what the settlement agreement is between him and Fox News, I know in some cases uh, someone is going to be let go, but they are going to get a payout. But the condition of the payout is you can't work for somebody else. If you do, we deduct that from your payout. And so he might want to just stay at home and make the money. On the other hand, you don't want to stay at home for too long in the world of media because then people have a tendency to forget about you. So is Tucker Carlson's step then to get into politics? And if he does, is that media following going to translate into political support? I think the, the first thing to remember is, as it's been reported, Carlson himself only found out about Fox's decision 10 minutes before it was officially announced. And so that suggests to me that there wasn't a lot of negotiation on conditions, which means I'd be very surprised if he were prevented from going to another uh, media platform, a potential competitor, simply because there wouldn't have been time for them to negotiate. Um, There's clearly no way of knowing whether Carlson is going to run for office or not. And I, I wouldn't feel comfortable speculating on it. I think the question is, is, is he big enough that he could elevate a less formidable conservative platform, a Newsmax, something like that, up to a Fox level, just given his own visibility uh, and recognition, um, or would taking a step like that, in fact, diminish him? And we don't know the answer to that yet, but it would be the logical place for him to look first. But could he actually go to a Newsmax or a Newsmaxer own? Could they even afford him, first of all? And secondly, they are next on the docket when it comes to the uh, defamation lawsuits regarding Dominion and Smartmatic. So would they be able to shoulder some kind of huge settlement with those companies at the same time paying someone like Tucker Carlson, who was reportedly making, you know, anywhere upwards of 25 to 30 million dollars a year? Well, we don't know if that's something they'd be able to do or not. My guess is that either one of those platforms would attract an immense amount of outside investment in order to finance a contract for Carlson. So I'd be willing to assume for the sake of argument that even if they couldn't afford it today, they could wound, they could round up the outside investors so it would be affordable to them. But your question about the lawsuit, I think, is the much more important one. Could they stomach that kind of legal vulnerability any more than Fox could? The reason I mention a more uh, uh, a more conservative outlet is because it's not clear what the other options for Carlson would be. Unlike Megyn Kelly, he's not going to go to a mainstream contributor. It's difficult to see him at a CNN or at one of the broadcast networks. The more likely parallel is someone like Lou Dobbs, who did go to one of these smaller platforms and use it to establish a persona for himself even greater than the platform itself. But would Tucker Carlson be touchable? Because we're talking about not just the uh, Dominion and the Smartmatic lawsuits. There's another lawsuit uh, that does regard Tucker Carlson directly, uh, and that is the Abby Grossberg suit, a former uh, Tucker Carlson producer who's alleging that uh, Tucker and his crew made a, a very toxic work environment, including a lot of misogyny, a lot of uh, uh uh, racial comments being made, anti-Semitic comments being made. Uh, would he be touchable if more of that stuff comes out in that suit? Well, once again, there's no way to predict in advance, but my guess would be this, 
that either an existing conservative platform like a Newsmax, a News, like a Newsmax, for example, or one that does not yet exist, might be willing to take the legal risk in order to get the financial payoff and visibility that comes with it. I mean, you're right. The lawsuits, not just the ones based on January 6th, but the ones based on Carlson's own conduct, are a very formidable legal obstacle. The question is whether or not another platform decides we'll roll the dice on that in order to get the viewership increase in the financial benefit that would come from someone with Carlson's visibility joining us. Does he even need another platform, though, with social media outlets like YouTube, Twitter and others that allow people to monetize their own content and provide a creator economy? There could be endless possibilities for Carlson to remain in the spotlight and his own, uh, you know, in his own platform and and do what he wants to do. Now, it hasn't been that successful for others who have done the same thing, like Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck, as our editor pointed out earlier when we were talking about this. But that is another direction he can go. It certainly is. And it reminds me of the early days of cable television when first CNN and then Fox and MSNBC began poaching network news talent to their cable platforms. We're at a stage in the development of social media influencer um, presence that we have never seen uh, an individual with the presence and the reach of Carlson making a shift like this. I can't think of anyone else, uh, Joe Rogan included, who could set up that successfully with solely a social media presence? Carlson might be able to, uh, but we won't know until or unless he tries. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dan Schnur at uh, USC. Harry Belafonte used his fame to further civil rights causes. He was active in the civil rights and progressive political movements. Belafonte worked closely with Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1960s, and uh, we're going to be joined in a moment by our uh, guest. I think we're working out some last-minute technical issues. It's going to be Saladin Ambar, professor of political science at Rutgers University, also author of a book called Stars and Shadows, The Politics of Interracial Friendship from Jefferson to Obama. And uh, just double-checking here with the producers, uh, we have our guest with us now. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. How are you? My pleasure. Can you hear me? All right. I'm going to transfer over here to my ear pods if I can find them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But thanks for letting us know. I'm not zooming, so let me get these in. I think you'll hear me even better. All right. Uh, The marvels of technology and live radio all mixed together makes for a heady brew. Uh, anyway, uh, one of the things we do want to talk about, and you, we kind of covered the impact that uh, Harry Belafonte had in the world of entertainment, but uh, he was also very active in other fields as well. And I think a younger generation, while they, they might know of the song, uh, that is not all there was to Harry Belafonte in entertainment, and certainly not all there was to the man when it comes to uh, politics and civil rights. Give us a little background on what Harry Belafonte, by his person, accomplished for civil rights in this country during his time? Well, this is a a man who took his fame and notoriety, much like his mentor, Paul Robeson, uh, and used it for good. He decided that uh, all of the uh, blessings and good fortunes that came with being American meant that he could not turn uh, turn a blind eye towards what was happening to the rest of his 
uh, black and brown countrymen, both in the United States and around the world. He wanted to emphasize racial justice, social justice, but also an end uh, to American foreign policy that was detrimental to much of the then developing world. Took some very unpopular positions uh, that, uh, frankly, uh, cost him some uh, in, in terms of his uh, stance in Hollywood and, and in the entertainment world, uh, but he was happy to do so. Uh, he and Sidney Poitier and, and frankly, Marlon Brando um, and a number of uh, entertainers during that period made a choice uh, that there was a better vision for America on the horizon, and it meant personal sacrifice uh, to speak out against injustice. And Belafonte epitomized that, frankly. Sure. He made that very clear in many interviews that he pushed for civil rights, that he was out there on the forefront with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He spoke at the historic 63 March on Washington. He established a lot of relationships with politicians, met with the Pope, but because of all this, he did kind of step away from the entertainment world, go into that political, humanitarianism, civil rights world, and he was blacklisted during the McCarthy era, era accused of being a communist, uh, yet he prevailed and kept going. Any parallels you can draw to today's political and social climate? I, I really per- personally haven't heard any comments uh, as of late from Belafonte before he passed on how he felt about today's environment. Well, you know, he was speaking out um, with with his friend Danny Glover, the actor Danny Glover, of course, uh, and others uh, who chose to do so for some time, including uh, in, in more recent years, although I hadn't, like you, ha- haven't heard much from him in, in, in recent months. I think, look, uh, Harry Belafonte was with people like Colin Kaepernick and others who uh, were willing to use, again, their popularity, their fame uh, to advance social justice. Uh, if you go back to the March on Washington, that post-March uh, roundtable that few people have really looked at, uh, in which you know uh, the United States Information Agency wanted to send out a puff piece around the world saying how even this march demonstrates how democratic we are. If you look at Belafonte's words that day, they were pretty fiery. He was saying that you know uh, the white middle class and moderates had to step up and take sides uh, with Dr. King. They had to. Uh, commit themselves, uh, the profiteers, the vested interests, have to commit themselves to a different vision for the country. Uh, And and he went off script, if you will. And that going off script pretty much epitomizes who Belafonte was. This was a man of immense, uh, frankly, physical beauty. There's no harm in saying that. He was a gifted and talented singer. Uh, And he could have lived a very different, safe life. But he decided that his personal well-being and safety did not mean Uh, much to him if it meant um, downplaying uh, the heinous conditions that he saw so many live in in this country, but also around the world. And I think that's what makes him so admirable. And I think had he been around uh, as a younger person today, he would stand with those calling for uh, racial justice, uh, for the defense of the marginalized and those who don't really have a voice or much of a voice in our politics today. You know, back in the day, uh, Martin Luther King drew the ire and, and, and the eye of uh, the FBI and uh, government agencies wanting to uh, investigate him for any subversive activities. Did Harry Belafonte face any of that from the government? Sure. He was on an FBI watch list. Uh, he was, uh, you know, maybe not as vigorously pursued as others, but like his mentor, Paul Robeson, was someone who drew the ire of uh, a society and, frankly, a government that saw everything through the lens of the Cold War. 
you know, you, you have to go back to the 50s and 60s and early 70s to appreciate how um, much the United States viewed the world through that singular uh, myopic prism of red versus red, white, and blue. And, and, you know, Belafonte didn't fit into any neat box. He certainly was more of a socialist than a capitalist, but he was more than anything really an American, someone who believed uh, that the country had to live out its creed of uh, all men and women are created equal. Uh, well, we say we believe in equality, but to actually pursue it really requires a radical politics at times, and that's what he embraced. And so uh, in some ways, it's a sad passing of a person who lived a legendary and prolific life, but it's also a celebration of the best within us uh, that collectively, uh, irrespective of race, and, and Belafonte had friends and loved ones and companions across the racial divide, uh, the best of us, regardless of our race, can do all we can and should do all we can to make this society better. I think he would stand with those today uh, in America calling for a more peaceful, harmonious and vigorously egalitarian society. We forget about equality. We love freedom. America's about freedom. But Belafonte represented equality. And I think that vision has to always be put to the fore. He certainly did it with his life and talents. All right. Talking about the impact of uh, Harry Belafonte, our guest was uh, Saladin Ambar at uh, Rutgers University and author of a book called Stars and Shadows, The Politics of Interracial Friendship from Jefferson to Obama. That is going to do it for today's edition of KNX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.